a great week coming up. Thanksgiving week, Lauren and I are uh, going down to Louisiana. It's going to be great once we get there, but the 12-hour trip may not be as, uh, as good. But we're, we're going to enjoy it, and I hope you uh, enjoy this time that we can take with, with family and friends and um, that we can give thanks for all the blessings that God has given us. There's a, a story about a, a boy and his mother, and the mother had to go uh, grocery shopping before a big dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, and um, so the boy was there for a long time, and this was a, one of the small local grocery stores, and so the um, mother could let the, the kid go and run off and do what he wanted, and he went up and he was talking to uh, the shop owner, he saw this big candy jar on the counter, and a little boy uh, just sat there mesmerized by all of this candy uh, in the jar. And eventually the, the owner asked if he wanted some, that it was there, he could reach in and, and grab a handful um, and take it with him. And he sat there, and he just kept looking at the jar. Uh, and the shop owner said, again, you, you can take some. I, I promise it's okay. Um, your mother's not going to be upset. Go ahead and, and take some. But the boy, he, he just sat there, silent, didn't say a word. Finally, the, the mother comes up, and, and she's uh, checking out. And uh, the shop owner talks to her about this, and she asks her son, you know, why didn't you just take a handful and, and put it in your pocket and have some candy? And the boy smiled, and he said, well, the shop owner's hand is bigger than mine. And so the shop owner reached in. <laughs> grabbed a, a bigger handful than he ever could. And that's one smart kid. He knew that if he put his hand in the jar, he wouldn't get nearly as much candy as if he just sat there kind of creepily and quietly waiting for that shop owner uh, to do it for him. He waited for the owner to provide for him because if the owner provided for him, he'd get so much more than if he provided for himself. And in our text today, we find that Abraham learned that very lesson. We read in Genesis 22 that God uh, tested Abraham and told him, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And when they are going up the mountain, in answer to his son's question about where the sacrifice was, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering in Genesis 22, 8. And later, when God did supply that ram for the sacrifice, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided in Genesis 22:14. 14. You know, the Hebrew phrase there is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And we often, we don't use that phrase Jehovah Jireh in our everyday speech. We have an English term providence, which essentially means the same thing. God provides. And what's interesting is outside of scripture, there's a lot of people who don't accept that. There, there's a lot of people who worship other gods or worship no God at all. And those gods, they don't provide for them. For example, um, in Buddhism, there is no God. Buddhists technically they don't worship a, a God specifically. As a result, there's no one to provide for them. They have a philosophy, but that philosophy is not based on someone providing for them. Hinduism, there's over uh, 300 million gods, but these gods, they don't provide or love their worshipers. A, a former Hindu noted, talking about love in a direct per personal relationship with God is revolutionary for Hindus because they don't have that kind of connection to their gods. And that a god would love us, that is pure god, or gold, excuse me, the man said. Then there's 
uh, Islam. They have one God, Allah, but he doesn't provide anything either. They, they see him um, as simply sitting over them. Allah isn't someone um, who particularly loves or, or cares for his worshipers. It's not that um, he's hateful towards them. It's just not what he's focused on. A former Sunni Muslim said that Allah is as close as your jugular vein, which is a place of fear, not of faith. As Muslims, grace was a foreign word to us. And I, we could go on and on, but the point is this. Our God, Jehovah God, is unique. Our God is Jehovah Jireh. And even though uh, Islam's uh, Allah is based on that, they've lost that last set of it, Jireh. Our God is the one who provides. And that truth is written apart every aspect of Scripture. And one of the most beloved passages of Scripture in the Bible is the 23rd Psalm. I read it uh, yesterday at Anne's funeral. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. What is he saying there? The Lord provides. And later in Psalms 34, 10, we're told the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Why don't they lack any good thing? Well, because the Lord provides. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 33. It is the constant drumbeat of scripture. God cares for you, and he desires to provide for you. But what I found interesting here in Genesis 22 is that it seems this is the first time that Abraham's coming to this realization, you know, he, that he spoke of God being his provider. Of course, God has always provided for Abraham, and I'm sure that in the back of his mind, Abraham had always thought that was true. But I think Abraham was a lot like us. His theology was pretty good. His doctrine was pretty good. He believed in God. He'd done all sorts of things up to this point because he believed that God existed. But when it got right down to applying his theology and life, his trust factor had it been particularly high. Now, how could we say that? How can we know that Abraham's trust factor wasn't very high? I mean, Abraham's been called the father of the faithful. Romans 4.16 says the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And Galatians 3.9 tells us those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So according to those verses, it's like Abraham is the gold standard of what faith looks like. But James 2.21 tells us something more about Abraham. In verse 21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. In other words, Abraham's willingness to offer up his son was the point at which he truly put his faith to the test. It was when his faith was completed, as James wrote. If you will, is where his faith was tested. And that's why James 22, 1 tells us God tested Abraham. Test Abraham. Why would God test Abraham? Well, apparently because Abraham's faith was still raw. It was still unproven. Someone said, 
once that an army that goes through uh, basic training is not ready for battle. It's not until the soldiers have faced battle already, been under fire, that they're considered to be proven or hardened or worthy. Uh, in order to have quality soldiers, they must be tested. A ship can't prove that it's sturdily built until it stays, or as long as it stays in the, the dry dock. It has to go out on the waters to prove that it's going to float. In other words, you can talk a big game, but if you are not tested, that's all it is. Talk. And that's what God was doing here with Abraham. He was testing Abraham's faith. He was putting Abraham's struggle, or putting Abraham's faith into a struggle, into a storm. God wanted to challenge Abraham by putting his faith into a test. And that's what God does with us sometimes. There are times uh, that God will put us in the middle of a struggle, in the middle of a storm, and it's going to be at those times when our faith will be tested and it challenged, and at those times our faith will also be strengthened. You see, God has saved us from our sins, but he doesn't want us to stop there. He doesn't want us to, to remain stagnant. He wants to challenge us to make our faith grow up, to be true men and women of God. God's not going to be satisfied if, we, uh, if he puts us through a test to help us be more powerful in our faith and we fail. And in that test, he often gives us um, something that we can share with others, a, a testimony that we can share um, with our neighbors around us. And we can't have that we can't have that story that we tell people. We can't have that reason for our faith that we share with others if we have not been tested. Someone put it this way. Only God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, and a victim into a victory. It's only in those uncomfortable and trying times of our life when our faith is tested that we are able to, to act like the people we claim to be. It's at those times that our faith becomes focused and strong and our witness becomes powerful. One of the most touching examples, we just a few months ago, we have this on, uh, what was it, September sometime, early September, a, a police officer um, shot and killed an unarmed black man in his uh, apartment. He was there um, just all alone in, in Dallas, Texas. On October 1st, the officer was uh, convicted of murder, given a 10-year sentence. And during the sentencing phase, the family had an opportunity um, to address the court and explain how this crime had impacted their lives and their families and, and um, what sort of extraordinary event this was. And when the word, uh, murdered man's brother, 18-year-old uh, Brant Jean, took the stand, he said this, I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've were what, how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just, if you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you too. I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die. I personally want the best for you. And he asked the judge if he could go down and hug the defendant. And why would he do that? And he did that because he was a Christian man. He was a member of the Dallas West Church of Christ. He just lost a brother, not just a, a physical brother, brother in Christ too, in the senseless act of violence. But in the midst of that tragedy, Brant Jean's faith in God was on full display. His forgiveness became national news. Most people praised him. Some, uh, of course, like anything else, condemned him for it. But no one could miss the fact that like Abraham, this young man's faith was put to the test. 
And he had proved himself to be a man of God. And Gene did what he did because of the one passage about God's providence that we haven't read yet. And we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God provided his only son so we could be forgiven. And just like Brant Jean forgave the woman who had killed his brother. You know, the uniqueness of the story here in Genesis 22 is that it shows that God has been planning this giving of his only begotten son centuries before Christ came, this ultimate act of providing. Isaac was the mirror image of Jesus. Both were uh, offered as sacrifices by their fathers, and each was described as the only begotten son of that father. Genesis 22, 2 describes Isaac as Abraham's only son, whom you love. And as the story unfolds, we find that these only begotten sons, they had a lot more in common. Isaac had a three-day hike to Mount Moriah, according to Genesis 22.4. Jesus had three days from the cross to the grave to the resurrection, according um, to the Gospels. Isaac was accompanied by two servants, according to verse 6 of Genesis 22. Jesus carried uh, or excuse me, Jesus was flanked by two thieves, according to Matthew 27, 38. Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice. Jesus carried the wood for his cross. Isaac willingly laid down on an altar. Jesus willingly was laid on the cross. God provided the sacrifice to save Isaac from death in Genesis 22:13, And God provided the sacrifice of Jesus to save us from our sins, according to Hebrews 10, 12. The point is, and the point of Isaac's story points forward to Christ. Abraham believed that his son would be brought back from the dead, according to Hebrews eleven seventeen. And while Jesus rose from the dead three days after he was crucified, and these sacrifices were both stunning examples of faith. Both Isaac and Jesus, they trusted their fathers, and Abraham trusted in a personal God who would provide, and on that faith, he built a personal relationship that would be carried on for all generations. You know, Abraham had one of the most dramatic relationships any man ever could have with God. A little over a fourth of Genesis is dedicated to telling Abraham's story, and much of the rest of the Old Testament is referencing back to this story. It's always Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when the fathers are mentioned. And the reason Abraham is so important to the people of the Old Testament is because God began his covenant with Israel through him. Now, this relationship that God had with Abraham, it was unique because Abraham wasn't what you call a great man. This isn't someone you found a religion with. Abraham, he didn't have any followers or, or disciples. He didn't write any books that we know of. He wasn't a great teacher or politician or warrior. He didn't even technically begin a religion. In fact, the only real claim that Abraham had to be this great man in history was that God chose him and made special promises to him in Genesis 12. What were those promises? I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, and to your offspring I will give this land. You know, what God was telling Abraham was, I want a relationship with you. 
I want to be there for you. I want to listen to you. I want to walk beside you. I want to be there when life gets lonely and frightening. And more than that, God was promising to make Abraham such a great man that he would even affect the lives of his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and even the entire world. To this day, all of the Western religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all trace their roots to this one man. And it's because Abraham was willing to trust God to provide. There was a, a hunger within him that only God could fulfill. There was a need for a relationship that only God could supply. So when God approached him, Abraham was ready to make a decision to follow God wherever and whenever God wanted to lead him. And when God said to him, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you, what did Abraham do? He packed up his tent and he went. There's no discussion, there's no argument, there's no excuses. When God says go, Abraham leaves. Now, contrast that with how another great man in Scripture dealt with a similar offer from God. In the book of Exodus, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and God speaks to him and says, I want you to go down to Egypt and lead my people out of slavery. And how does Moses respond? He starts making excuses, right? He says, who am I to do this? What if they don't listen to me? What if I'm not enough? What if I can't talk well enough? And God gave an answer to every excuse that Moses gave and every uh, objection he raised, God had an answer for. And finally, Moses gives up the pretense of all these excuses and he comes out right and says it, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it in Exodus 4.13. That was how Moses responded to God, but not Abraham. Abraham didn't argue, he didn't offer excuses, and he didn't do those things because inside of him, inside of Abraham's heart, there, excuse me, there is a hunger that only God could satisfy. He knew only God could provide what he needed. And so when God offered, Abraham jumped at the chance. Now, God had had close relationships before Abraham came along. There was Adam and Eve. God gave them uh, a wonderful place. He cared for them. He listened to them. He walked with them in the garden. There is uh, Enoch. He was close with God, walked closely with him for over 300 years. And then, of course, there was Noah, whom God entrusted with building the ark. But if you look at all the verses in Genesis that were dedicated to those people, Adam and Eve and Enoch and Noah and put them all together, you'd have about half the amount of attention spent on them as Abraham. Why is that? You know, I think God was spending so much time telling us about Abraham because there is something that he wanted to showcase in this man. With Abraham, God was going to begin something new. He was making a covenant, a contract with him, a covenant that would be the foundation of everything else that God intended to do, including ultimately sending Jesus to pay the price of our sins. God was beginning a relationship right here in Genesis with Abraham as the cornerstone. So what does God want us to see in this story of Abraham? What's valuable for us? Well, first, he wants us to see what kind of relationship he wants with us. He wants to be the provider. He wants to provide for us. You and I, we are valuable to him. We have value not because we're accomplished or, or rich or successful, but because we are made in his image. He loves you. You're made in his image. And because he loves you, he wants to provide. He wants to bless you. In fact, God is so serious about blessing you that he gets a little upset when other people don't bless you. God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus said, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water 
to one of these little ones because he is my disciple. I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward, Matthew 10, 42. In other words, God promises to bless people who bless you. But then in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, Paul tells the Christians in Thessalonica, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. What's he saying? God will curse those who curse you. God wants us to be blessed. In fact, Romans 8.32 goes so far that he spared not his only son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? But it doesn't stop there. Just as God told Abraham that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him, so also God intends everyone you meet to be blessed through you, just like it was for Abraham. God wants to bless your children and your grandchildren and your co-workers and your neighbors, they should all be affected by the relationship, this relationship of God providing for us. They should all be blessed to the point where everything we do should make them think about God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And what? Glorify your Father in heaven. If by your love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, those fruits of God's spirit that are developed in our life, that by that fruit, our neighbors begin looking to God. It's ultimately going to lead to their wanting this provider for their lives as well. God wants to bless you and he wants to bless others through you. Secondly, God wanted us to see in this relationship with Abraham that he wants a response from us. It's not enough for us to just have eternity in our hearts and want God in our lives. It's not enough for us to see the blessings that God offers and want those blessings in our lives. That's not enough. Before Abraham could lay hold of the blessings, he had to make a decision. God told him, the Lord had said to Abraham, lead your country, or excuse me, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to land I will show you in Genesis 12. And then he told him about the blessings and he said, Make a choice. Abram, I can give you your heart's desire. You've got to make a choice. Got to make up your mind to leave who you've been. Got to make up your mind about leaving the place you've been. You've got to leave how you've lived before. You've got to make up your mind to go where I want you to go, to live where I want you to live, to live how I want you to live. But you've got to leave this old life behind. You know, that day on the mountain with Isaac was Abraham boldly making that choice. It was him saying to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. He was declaring that this God was Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was convinced that God would not lie to him. God had promised him a son, Isaac, and that son had been promised to the one through whom generations of descendants would be born. And yet God had asked for Abraham to sacrifice that only son, the, the son of promise. And so Abraham concluded in Hebrews eleven nineteen that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. That's why he told the servants to wait for him at the base of the mountain. He said, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham, he thoroughly expected to come back with his only son, even if God had to raise that boy from the dead. And in a sense, that's exactly what happened. Abraham received his son back from the death, and now he lived. By contrast, Jesus, he did die, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus came back from the dead, and he did that. So we would know because he lives, 
so will we. That's the promise that's been given to us. That is how God will provide for us. And that promise was driven home in the one physical deed that God requires of us to become Christians in baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 5, it says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know, every time we see someone accept Jesus through baptism, we see this truth reenacted over and over again. You know, why would God do it that way? Because he wanted to remind us that though he is a God who can provide for all of our earthly needs, he can do that. If that's all he did, eventually we would still die. We'd be buried when we would stay in the grave and ultimately go to hell because God provided his only begotten son for us so that didn't have to happen. That is our bold declaration that just like Abraham declared, our God is Jehovah Jireh. And when we put all of our hope and faith in him to provide. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked in John eleven twenty five through 26. In Genesis 22, God revealed to us that he had a plan from the very beginning to send Jesus centuries before he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And God provided that story to us so that we might believe. So do we believe? If you do, now is the time to make a choice. God, he can provide for you. He can provide more for you than you'll ever be able to provide for yourself. Remember that story of the kid in the grocery store from the beginning. He's got bigger hands than we do. God can provide everything we need, but to benefit from that provision, we've got a choice to make. God says he can give us our heart's desire but we've got to make a choice. We've got to make up our mind to leave who we've been. We've got to leave where we've been, and we've got to leave how we used to live. We've got to make up our mind to go where he wants us to go and put our whole trust in him. So if you're ready to do that today, we're here to help you. Come to the front of the room.